This is your host, Len Osanic. Today we are speaking to author Monica Wiesak. Hello, Monica. Hey, Len. How are you? It's really great to be back on your show. Very good. Well, I got to tell you, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of your work. Your JFK research just astounded me. It was really heavy hitting. It wasn't something that somebody just said, oh, I just watched the movie JFK. I think I'll write a book. I was just so impressed with with your work that you've come up with a book on a different topic and I'm just, you know, jumping at the bit saying, yeah, whatever the book is about, I'm a, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. This book is Michael Jackson, The Man, The Music, The Controversy. I must admit, I didn't know an awful lot about it. I kind of heard 50-50 about, oh, here's the guy that sleeps in a hyperbaric chamber and he's got a monkey and but he makes good music. And it seems that he never really had a childhood, so he built his own little park. And uh, yeah, if I had millions of dollars, I wonder what I would do. Would I make a roller coaster in my backyard? You know, hard to tell, but um, that's kind of at arm's length what I, I knew about him. This book, I think I just wrote to you, it reminded me of what someone must have felt in 1965 when they read Rush to Judgment by Mark Lane, or uh, whatever year his book came out, you know, Plausible Denial or whatever. Right, but, but you know, somebody like, what they told you was a complete lie. And I was really um, not prepared for the amount of lying going on, except to say that I had studied the JFK assassination and the Warren Commission, and I've studied, you know, Bobby Kennedy and Cyril Weck's work and, and the Martin Luther King case, and, that, and you go, wow, are they ever lying? So this kind of thing is the only thing that really prepared me to say, no, that can't be true. That can't be true. So I guess I'm talking a little too much here. I guess my first question usually is, what inspired you to look into this topic and to write about it? So I've been a big MJ fan since I was a little kid. The first song of his I heard or the first song I consciously remember hearing was Man in the Mirror which really, really inspired me as a kid because it made me want to be a good person. It made me want to be an empathetic person. It made me want to care about or help the people that are typically forgotten by society. So I remember listening to that song and I remember being really, really moved by it. And it was that song that actually introduced me to JFK as well because in the video he has images of JFK and he actually wrote in his autobiography, which came out in the mid-1980s, that that song is about the philosophy of JFK, 
that, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That's what Man in the Mirror is about. It's about if you want to make the world a better place, you have to do it yourself. And Jackie Kennedy actually edited Michael's autobiography, and she wrote the introduction to it. So he worked with her on his book. And so there was that connection to JFK right away, you know, that I got from Michael. And then as you know, his next album that came out, which was 1991, which was the Dangerous album, he was kind of building on that prior theme. Like he came out with Heal the World, Black or White, these like really beautiful songs, you know, and in the in the Man in the Mirror video, he doesn't appear at all until the very end. And he shows, you know, all these people suffering throughout the world. He shows his heroes like Martin Luther King, RFK, JFK. And then in the Heal the World video, he just shows sort of all these war-torn regions from Asia to Africa to Israel and Palestine. And then he sees these kids playing without, or he shows these kids playing without prejudice. And then the soldiers with their guns ultimately lay down their guns when they see like how the kids are interacting with each other. And I know that's a really like utopian, unrealistic sort of, sort of thing. But as a little kid, that impacts you because you're like, that's how I want to see the world. That's the kind of world that I want to live in, Right. And so then I remember when 1993 came and those allegations hit, I was just like, what is going on? Like, I didn't believe it at all. Obviously, I didn't know at that time. When I went back later in life and studied it, I kind of, you know, I knew what nonsense it was. But at the time, I didn't really know because the media wasn't reporting on it accurately. You know, the media was just like, you know, yeah, he's a molester. That's it. End of story kind of thing. And it was really salacious. It was really like tabloid-like. And I didn't really understand what was going on, why they were so viciously going after him, because it just seemed so out of character. Yeah, looking back, it was one-sided. Yes, very one-sided. And so I knew as a kid right away I was quite distrustful of what was going on. It made no sense to me. And then in response to that, he came out with the history album, and he actually uppercased the first three letters to imply that history depends on who tells it, because it's his story, right? which already was an implication just by that title that you're gonna, not going to get the truth from the mainstream, so to speak. And in that, or in, on that album, he had a lot, even I would say even bolder songs like They Don't Care About Us, like Money. He actually wrote a song about the JFK assassination on that album, um, both character and physical assassination. And that also, I think, seeped into my subconscious, the idea that JFK was character assassinated, because I must have listened to that song like a million times when I was young. So I'm sure that had an impact later when I decided to write a book about JFK, because it had already been seeped into my subconscious that he was character assassinated. And so I kind of started to learn from him, from MJ, to kind of look at the media with a skeptical eye and to be kind of questioning of power, you know, especially in the song, They Don't Care About Us, you know, where he's basically saying those in power don't care about the rest of humanity. And in that video, he's showing all these atrocities from human history, including um, the shooting of Lee Har Harvey Oswald by Jack Ruby in that video. And so that definitely impacted me and even, I think, made it even harder for me to believe those allegations. And then later when, like, the internet became more widespread, you know, in the 2000s, that's when I started actually looking at those things, like because you there were like court papers started being available online and things like that. And you could actually research for yourself what was going on. And that's when I realized, like, man, this is all like he was just totally railroaded. Like, this is just, 
you know, such BS, you know, it makes you question. And I raise the question in my book, you know, how free are artists to express themselves, you know, and if he had stayed your typical pop artist who continued to sing like Billie Jean and Thriller, would his career have continued to, you know, be great? And would his press coverage continue, continue to have been good? You know, what are the reasons that he was railroaded and smeared and, you know, and destroyed essentially? And did that have anything to do with what he was saying in his music and really trying to push people away from his music? Um, because when you look at the music industry today, you don't really see artists speaking out at all. You know, they all kind of push mainstream narratives. You know, they don't really question the wars that are fought. They don't question the culture that is pushed. And so if you have an independent artist, is that really allowed? Um, so those are the kind of questions, you know, I raise in the book or I, I want to raise with the book. And it does go into, you know, a lot. I called it the man, the music, the controversy, because I'd say about a third of the book is about him. And just kind of building up, you know, his early life story and his life in the 80s and whatnot. And then the music, because it goes into a lot of this music I just mentioned and a lot of other music. Because his music tells a lot about his story and a lot about what how he viewed the world, um, what he thought of the world, what he thought of power, what he thought of war, things like that. Um, and then the controversy, because I go in depth probably a third, if not more than a third of the book goes in depth into those allegations and basically discredits them. Um, you know, my hope is anybody who reads the book will see that he was railroaded and that, you know, he was clearly not a child molester. And so that's what I hope people get out of the book and that it, and I hope it makes them think about, you know, how our society works, how power works, how media works. Yeah. Especially the criminal justice system. You yes. know, there, there is a backlash also because you mentioned that artists aren't like in, in, in the 60s, everyone was, you know, anti-war rallies and things like that. And, and they were looking to people in bands, I can't think of anybody else, say Cosby, Stills, Nash & Young, people like that, to write a protest song, to do something in action. And that doesn't really happen anymore because of a major media backlash. I can think of one with uh, the Dixie Chicks. And also the only other one while you were speaking, I was thinking of, yeah, there's, there, is there anybody? And I was thinking of Roger Waters. And he, for speaking up for his thoughts, is a tremendous backlash. Well, yeah, because his label just dropped him, I heard. Yeah, and, and other things. They want to cancel concerts and they want to do the, you know, it's just, I have opinions. I'm writing music about that. Come to my concert if you want to support that. If you don't, don't come to the concert. Or, you know, if you don't, don't buy my record. But for um, the, the backlash is, well, it's worth studying. Like I said early on, I just couldn't believe that uh, the Warren Commission, you know, made it. And people still years later would cling to that, right? Yeah. But in this case, oh, go ahead. In this case, I didn't know the details. So as your book starts off to reveal stuff about Michael. Then when you get into what the charges were and who the people were behind it, it's astounding. I mean, it's astounding. And I think people who uh, have done this political research study will recognize right away, oh, this is a tried and true character assassination. And, you know, the people, when they bring these charges, when they're dismissed, just, there's no penalty for that. They say, oh, well, it didn't work. Or, you know, in the, in the, in the case where the 14 charges were, each one of them was not guilty, uh, I, I didn't know that there was that many and that each the jury f 
found them not guilty on every charge. You think, well, what was the penalty for that? Nothing. Yeah, exactly. It's like, and even like the 1993 case, and I can go into that in detail if you want, you know. Well, I'd like to, and I'll give you the floor here, because for people who may be listening and not too familiar with all, like, well, I heard he was a little bit weird and whatever, but, you know, what's this really troubling charges? Like, I mean, everything else I can let slide, but this stuff I can't. And then you go ahead and and, uh, detail. Yeah, so this all started in 1993. So a man named Evan Chandler made the allegations. So he had an ex-wife, June Chandler, and they had a son, Jordy, and then June had another daughter, Lily. And Evan was a really absent father. Like he paid no attention to to Jordy at all. He owed June like something like 60 grand in child support back pay. He wasn't paying his child support at all. He wasn't spending time with his son. And essentially Michael's vehicle ran out of gas and it ran out of gas um, right down the street from a business called Renarec, which June's new husband, David Schwartz, it was his business. So Michael went in there and then David called June and Jordy down because Jordy was a big fan of Michael's. Essentially that's how they met and they exchanged phone numbers. And Michael was just like really, really grateful to them and and whatnot. So he ended up calling them um, later. And then when Evan found out that his ex-wife and son and daughter were friendly with Michael, he suddenly took like the greatest interest in the world in Jordy. And so Michael met with Evan and he went to his house and stayed overnight at his house, I think one night. And, you know, they were like kind of friendly, but I don't think Michael was really feeling Evan very much um, because Evan was a bit of a narcissist. And so essentially MJ was kind of ignoring him and not returning his phone calls. And Evan wanted... So Michael had just gotten like $40 million from Sony. Basically, uh, it was like a movie deal to write scripts and whatnot. And Evan was actually a script writer. He'd written one script, Robin Hood Men in Tights, and he wanted half that Sony money from Michael, $20 million, so he could write scripts. But Michael had no interest in giving him any money or doing anything really with him. And he was spending a lot of time with June and with Jordy and Lily, And so Evan started to become really kind of erratic and jealous. And so David Schwartz decided to tape a phone conversation with Evan. And in that conversation, he's basically ranting and raving at how angry he is at Jordy and June and Michael and how they're all ignoring him. And he's like, I like Michael. Why doesn't he return my phone calls? And he's just like, you know, he he sounds like a jealous, like a jealous boyfriend, but jealous of Michael and not June. Like he's jealous that Michael's not calling him rather than June is not calling him. And then so he goes and rants and raves, and then he tells him that I'm going to destroy this man. I'm going to destroy June. David asks him, well, how's this going to impact Jordy? And he's like, that's irrelevant to me. And he basically says everything's going according to a certain plan that isn't just mine. There's other people involved. They're set up in certain positions. And all I have to do is pull the trigger, and that man will not sell another record. And so what happened then is David and showed uh, basically played the tape for June, and then the next day they played the tape for Michael's private investigator, Anthony Pelicano. So Pelicano went to Jordy, because Evan didn't say it explicitly, but he kind of implied he might accuse Michael of molesting his son. And so Pelicano asked Jordy, has Michael ever touched you? Has he ever molested you, etc.? Jordy said, no, my dad just wants money. And then what happened is Evan asked June for a temporary, like a one-week visitation with Jordy. And she obliged, and like a month went by, and he wouldn't give Jordy back to her. And during that month, he went to a psychologist with a hypothetical scenario, and he asked him, how do I report child abuse without liability to the parent? 
And the psychologist told him, well, if a child reports it to me, then I'm legally obligated to report it to the police. And that's how it'll get reported. And so June was getting really frustrated because Evan wouldn't give Jordy back to her. So she ended up going to court and saying, I want my son back. And I don't think they plan to release the molestation allegations that quickly, but because June went to court saying she wants Jordy back, and likely if she would have gotten Jordy back, Jordy would have never agreed to do anything his father wanted him to do. Evan reacted really rashly, and he right away took Jordan to the psychologist, and then the psychologist reported to the police that Jordy had told him that he had been molested. And then the next day, it was like wildfire in the media. It was like spread all over the global media. Yeah, but if you don't mind me cutting in here, it just sounds like extortion, a planned extortion. Yes, and they actually were negotiating over a movie script. So Evan went to Michael and said, you know, this is even before this hit the press. He went to Michael's team and is like, you know, if you give me a script deal, I won't say anything to anyone. And Michael's like, you know, F off, basically. Like, I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, this, like, you know, well, this was like Pelicano and Michael's lawyers, but they're like, you know, they clearly knew this was an extortion attempt because there were constant extortion attempts against Michael. And they weren't willing to give Evan any money or, you know, play ball with him or whatever. They were trying to make record of the extortion attempt. So they were like talking to him, but they weren't willing to make any kind of deal with him. And then so once Evan realized he had to give Jordy back to June, that's when he right away took him to the psychologist because he's like, as soon as I give Jordy back, this whole thing's done. You know, Jordy won't cooperate, you know, if he goes back to June. So essentially that hit the media. So the police started an investigation. But then the second thing that happened is then Evan filed a civil lawsuit against Michael for molesting his son. So what people have to understand is this created two court cases simultaneously for the same matter, but one had absolutely nothing to do with the other. So there was the criminal case, which was being investigated by the police, And obviously, you know, if you're found guilty in a criminal case, you could go to prison. Um, And criminal cases have a much higher burden of proof. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, with a civil case, you can't go to prison. You can only um, be forced to pay compensation. And the burden of proof is much lower. You only have, or the other side only has to show that you are more likely than not to have committed the crime. So Michael's lawyers were pissed and they went to the judge four times to try to delay the civil case and delay Michael's civil deposition. And their argument was, you can't force our client to give a civil deposition when there's an ongoing criminal investigation for the same matter, because once you have him deposed and under oath, and he and he has to respond to, I was here at this date and here at that time, et cetera, et cetera, then the police can build their case around what he's already said under oath. And that's actually exactly what happened in 2005. When they found out Michael had an ironclad alibi, they simply changed the dates on the charge sheet to work around his alibi um, in their criminal charges. So that's kind of the exact scenario they were trying to avoid. Let's back up about that. You mean they made charges that there was something going on on certain days? And they they brought this out on paper, and then Michael was able to refute that, said, I wasn't even in town then, I was here, I was there, whatever. Yeah, so this is in the 2005 case. So their original charges, I think, were February 7th to March 10th for the alleged molestation. And when they found out he had an ironclad alibi, that was their original charge sheet that they indicted him under. But then when they got to trial, they said, no, it actually started February 20th because Michael had an ironclad alibi for those first few weeks. So they 
they rewrote their charge sheet basically when so they got the, to trial. So the fix was in. They, they were going to yeah. charge him whether whether he was there or not. Correct. Yeah. So that's what they were trying to avoid in 1993. And we'll get to why 2005 was different in a minute. So Michael's lawyers went to the judge like four times and said, you have to let the police finish their criminal investigation and close their criminal case before you allow this civil trial to proceed and before you force Michael to give a civil deposition, because he has a right to present his defense for the first time in a criminal courtroom. You can't force him to give away his defense in a civil deposition and allow the police to then work around it, you know, to their delight to get, you know, to basically try to win their criminal case. But what happened is Chandler's lawyer pushed and he filed a trial uh, preference saying, we want a trial with a civil trial within 120 days. And his argument was that Jordy's memory might go away. So we have to expedite the civil trial. We can't wait until after the criminal case. It has to happen right now because the criminal investigation could take years. We don't want to wait years. We want the civil trial ASAP. And the judge sided with Chandler's lawyers and said, okay, we're going to do a civil trial within 120 days. Michael needs to be deposed by January. And, you know, and that's it. So Meanwhile, while all this is going on, the police is doing their investigation. They, they interviewed like 200 witnesses and they um, raided his home, Neverland, and his condo in Los Angeles, and they found nothing. They didn't find a single corroborating witness. And so what they did then is they ordered a body search of Michael, um, basically to like inspect his genitalia and whatever. And they wanted to know if the description given by Jordy would match you know, the photographs and video they took, and it did not match for several reasons. We know that it did not match. Number one, they did not arrest him. If it had matched, they would have arrested him right away. Number two, Jordy told the police Michael was circumcised. We know from his autopsy he was not circumcised. We also know that in the civil trial, after those photographs were taken, Chandler's attorney filed a motion to bar the photographs from the civil trial. There would be absolutely no reason to bar them from the civil trial if there was a match. You'd want to get them included if it had been a match. And then at a grand jury hearing, they asked Michael's mother if her son had surgery on his genitalia. So they were basically trying to, you know, were hoping she said yes so they could explain away why Jordy's description didn't match. So they forced him to go through this humiliating ordeal and strip search in December. And then in January, he was supposed to be deposed January 14th. And then that deposition got moved to January 25th. But the, his attorneys couldn't get it delayed any further. So they settled the case on January 25th, the day of his deposition, to basically they wanted to avoid having him give a deposition. Now, it's not clear who paid the settlement. There's a, according to a representative from Transamerica, Michael's insurance company, they offered to pay the settlement. And according to the legal secretary of Chandler's lawyer, the insurance company paid the settlement. And Michael did write in a, a later song in his history album, Insurance, Where Do Your Loyalties Lie? Because it's not clear, you know, how keen he was on settling. He was definitely very much pressured by his lawyers to settle, you know, because they're saying you've got this ongoing criminal matter. You cannot get involved in the civil trial and the civil deposition. You need to focus on the criminal case. You know, we can't, you, we can't have you like being deposed for some civil case right now on the same matter. So essentially they settled his case. It's not clear who paid it. I believe the insurance company paid it. I'm not 100% sure about that. So the extortion worked then? Yes, it worked. And then what happened is after, so they settled that civil case in January. And then in the spring, because the criminal case continued, right? The criminal investigation continued. 
they convened two grand juries, one in Santa Barbara and one in Los Angeles, and both refused to indict Michael Jackson because there was no evidence and the description didn't match. Now, they'll say, you know, a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich, but in this case, not one, but two grand juries refused to indict him. And then what happened is they actually changed the California law as a direct result of that case. So going forward, the law is now if you have a civil and a criminal case for the same matter, the civil case can be stayed until the criminal case is complete. But that law didn't exist at the time um, that Michael was going through this. So they had no way of stopping that civil case. And that's why he went to a criminal trial in 2005, because they actually those 2005 accusers went to the exact same lawyer that Chandler used in 1993, and that lawyer told them, you need to go through the criminal uh, investigation first before I can file a lawsuit on your behalf, um, because that's just the way the law works now. And yes, and so in that case, they did originally charge him for certain dates, and then when they found out he had an alibi, they switched. they switched a lot of things between the initial charges and what they actually ended up charging him at trial. And I and I can go into that trial as well in a, in a minute if you want. But then Jordy legally emancipated himself from both his parents, allegedly because he was really angry at his parents for making him participate in this whole thing. We don't know for 100% why he legally emancipated himself from his parents, but based on things that like Jordy's friends have said and whatnot, that's kind of what it appears to be, and his mother testified in 2005 that she had not spoken to her son in 11 years, um, because what happened is the police or the prosecutors tried to get Jordy to testify in 2005 against Michael, and he absolutely, absolutely refused. He even left the country. He's like, I'm not testifying against him. And Evan actually then physically attacked his son, like about a two months after Michael got acquitted. Then Jordy got a restraining order against his father. So one has to ask, you know, did his father physically attack his son because of Jordan's refusal to testify against Michael? So there's just so much going on. So because the prosecutors were trying to bring in Jordy to testify and Michael's lawyers had no idea if he was going to agree or not agree, oh, he ended up not agreeing. But if he had agreed to testify, they were going to bring in a bunch of witnesses to basically say that Jordy told them privately that this was all a scam by his father and, you know, Michael never molested him and, you know, he wanted nothing to do with his parents, basically. So that's kind of the 1993 case in a nutshell. I'm, I'm you know, there's a lot more probably to go into in the book than I just said right there, but that's it in a nutshell. So that is very, very different from what was reported in the media and Evan is literally on tape saying everything is going according to a certain plan that isn't just mine. There are other people involved. So I don't know who was involved in this thing with him, but it's very clear when you listen to that audio from that was June, July of 1993, where he's plotting this thing, you know, that the whole point was to destroy Michael's image, to get him to stop selling records and to make Evan rich. That was really that's clear from that audio that that's what it's about, and that's clear sort of what happened. And then Michael actually, now it may have been Michael's paranoia. I don't think he necessarily had any evidence or anything like that, but he wrote a song about that district attorney that was going after him, and then he wrote in it, I think he wrote, they want to get my ass dead or alive. You know, he really tried to take me down by surprise. I bet he missioned with the CIA. So again, that could just be Michael's paranoia. I don't think he had any evidence as to who was trying to bring him down, but he definitely felt it was much bigger than, than what it appears to be on the surface level of just, you know, a boy complaining that he was molested. 
Um, because according to Michael's hairstylist, also Jordy called Michael crying and saying, "Why is you know why is my dad doing this? Why is this happening?" So there's just like a lot going on with that case, and and it does make you wonder, um, you know, who was involved in trying to, you know, push that, and why did the media so blindly run with that narrative without doing any kind of real investigation? And basically, to this day, they report those allegations as true. Right, but it bothers me that the police didn't do any. They, they took, took one side of the story and ran with it, and kind of in spite of the evidence. Well, we'll get around that. Well, we'll change this. We'll we'll make it work. Don't worry. Instead of saying, "Wait a minute, maybe this is a bunco," you know, extortion. Yeah, and that's actually, and that's really clear to see actually in the 2005 case. So what happened in the 2005 case, so Michael did this documentary, uh, Living with Michael Jackson, in 2003. It was a horrible documentary. It was, like, really manipulative, um, really, like, manipulatively edited, basically a hit piece. And so in that documentary, Michael is seen holding hands with Gavin, um, who I think was maybe 12 at the time, 11, something like that. And it came out in court that Bashir, the director, um, had actually asked Michael to hold Gavin's hand. So that's why you see him holding Gavin's. Because Michael was like, this kind of weird, but whatever. He he did what he told him to do. And so you see him holding Gavin's hand in the documentary. And Gavin is leaning his shoulder or his head on Michael's shoulder. And Gavin tells a story. So Gavin met Michael through Michael's hairstylist. Because I guess her son was in the same dance class or something. I don't, I don't remember what it was, but they, they, he, he met her through his hairstylist son and he basically begged her to introduce them to Michael because he had a, like a rare cancer and she normally wouldn't have agreed, but because he had cancer, she was like, okay, I'll set up this meeting. So they went up to Neverland and they, they ended up staying, you know, for a few days or whatever. And Gavin told this story in the Bashir documentary saying, you know, we asked Michael, can we stay in your room? And he said, sure. And then we're like, can we sleep in your bed? And Michael's like, no, Gavin said, you sleep on the bed. And Michael's like, no, you can sleep on the bed. And so what you see in the media is Michael basically saying there's nothing wrong with sharing your bed. But they don't, they cut out the part where Michael says, I slept on the floor with my assistant, you know, because you always want to give the best to the company. And so we gave the, you know, Gavin and his brother the bed and we slept on the floor. And Michael didn't even really want them in his room, but he asked his assistant. He didn't really have the heart to tell them no because Gavin had cancer. And that's why he asked his assistant to sleep in the room because he wasn't sure. Like he felt the kids were being kind of pushy, but he just didn't have the heart to tell them no. So he let them sleep in the room. And he and Frank, his assistant, slept on the floor. And Michael's kids were in the room as well. So there were a lot of people in that room. Yeah, yeah. That's another thing just about about your book, which Revelations were. I didn't realize how little time Michael was actually there, but how how often he had people over to the, quote, the ranch, right? Yeah. So, and I, so I, people are always there. And it, if you had cancer or a Make-A-Wish program, you got to go to his ranch and he might not even be there. Yeah. So what people don't understand is he spent about one or two weeks at, at total at Neverland until the later years. I think in the by the early 2000s, he was spending more time there. But in the late 80s and 1990s, he spent about one or two weeks a year at Neverland. So he was virtually never, ever there. And Neverland was essentially a full-time charity operation. So it had like 100 staff there. And then one to three days a week, they would invite like a group of either terminally ill children or inner city children or like a group of elderly people 
to basically come to the ranch and enjoy it. Cause it's like 3000 acres. It's right next to a national forest. So it has these like beautiful mountains and lakes and trees. It does have a zoo there and an amusement park there. So basically it allows people who normally wouldn't get to experience those kinds of things to experience them for the day. And I know when I was watching an interview with one of the ranch managers, he said his favorite memory was when they would invite like all these burn kids to spend the day at the ranch because they look like aliens. They're so badly burned. They look like aliens. But he said at the ranch, they could like run around and have fun and nobody was pointing fingers at them. You know, nobody was staring at them. They could just be kids and, you know, enjoy nature and enjoy the park and whatnot. Yeah, Michael had an affinity to that because of his burn when he got burned on the set, right? And so, like you yes. say, he often would invite burn victims there. Yeah, so yes, he had really horrible burns on his scalp. So he had a, a lot of affinity for people that were suffering or for people who didn't have a childhood, you know, because he said, like, I didn't have a childhood, so I know what it's like for these children. You know, he wasn't sick when he was a child, but if you're dealing with cancer at eight, nine years old, you know, you're living in an adult world with adult stress, even though you're eight years old. So he could really empathize with those children. And that's why he opened his ranch up, which was basically a full-time charity op- operation. Like I said, he was virtually never there. He virtually never appeared at these events. They were basically run by his staff. But going back to the 2005 case, so the media started speculating 24-7 after this documentary aired that Michael was molesting Gavin. So because they were bombarding Gavin's family, Gavin reached out to Michael and they were basically like, can we stay at Neverland for a few weeks until this media hoopla dies down because the press is like at our door, it's driving us crazy. And Michael was like, sure, that's fine. Because Neverland's like 3,000 acres, there's multiple guest cottages there. So he's like, yeah, if you want to stay at the ranch for a few weeks until the hoopla dies down, that's fine. And so what happened then is, so that all went fine. Then they left Neverland The documentary aired early February. So around February 8th, 9th, Gavin and his family went to Neverland and they left, I think, March 10th or 12th was their last day on the property. And the police and the uh, DCF Department of Children and Family Services and Gavin's uh, like a school, I don't know if it's a school principal or headmaster or somebody, they all started asking him, you know, are you being molested by Michael? Because the media is speculating about it 24-7, right? And he tells them all, no, I haven't been molested. So they leave Neverland and basically Michael kicks them off the property because he's kind of sick of them there. They have a, it comes out in court, this, our visas have a really sordid history of like scamming people for money and stuff. And I can go into that later, but basically all, Michael's staff testified that they were like rude and they weren't respectful to the staff. And Michael just eventually said, you know, you need to leave. And so basically they ended up, they went to Feldman, the same attorney that won the big 1993 settlement. And because the law had changed, he told them, no, you need to work with the police first. I can't do anything for you till the police complete their investigation. And so by the following November, the police arrested Michael Jackson and charged him with molestation. And they said he'd molested Gavin seven times. And Gavin said he remembered five times. And then his brother said he saw Gavin being molested twice, which I guess Gavin didn't remember or he was asleep or something. Then what happened is they said those uh, molestation occurred between February 7th and March 10th, right? So this is really important to keep in mind because this is after the documentary aired, after the police is already investigating Michael, after the DCFS are already investigating Michael for molesting Gavin. So you have to consider this timeline, like the whole world is speculating that you're molesting this child. 
The police are investigating you for molesting this child. Department of Children and Family Services are investigating you for molesting this child. And while all that's going on, you decide to, for the first time, start molesting this child. You'd have to be literally the dumbest criminal like known to mankind to do that, right? But that's the dates they went to court with, initially went to court with. It gets even worse. So that's that was in their charge sheet. And then the police, when they're, uh, you know, between when they filed their charges and between when the court case started, they found this videotape that the Arvizos taped on February 20th um, because Michael uh, filmed this rebuttal documentary to kind of try to deal with the horrible PR from this Bashir documentary, this hit piece, right? So he wanted, he filmed this rebuttal documentary, which did air. And the version that aired, the Arvizos, which is the family that was accusing Michael, did not appear. But essentially, they, they found this videotape, and in this videotape, the Arvizos are praising Michael, and they're making fun of Bashir, and they're making fun of his insinuations that, you know, that Gavin was being molested by Michael. And there's a lot of in-between chit-chat, right? So the police, when they found this videotape, what they said is, you know, they had to deal with it somehow. So they added a conspiracy to kidnap and imprison the Arvizos to Michael's list of charges. So he wasn't just charged with molestation. He was essentially charged with kidnapping and imprisoning a family. And they had to do that because they, their argument was, oh, he forced the Arvizos to make this videotape. Even though if you watch the videotape, which is available online, there's so much chit-chat in between official filming, and it's clear that they think, you know, the whole Bashir documentary is nonsense and stuff, and they they clearly deny any insinuations that it makes. But nevertheless, that was the police's argument that he kidnapped and imprisoned this family and forced them to make this video. But then they ran into another problem, because that's when they found out the ironclad alibi that Michael had for the early parts of February. So now they're like, crap, we can't accuse him of molesting Gavin between February 7th and March 10th. So they moved the date out till after February 20th, the start date. So now the allegation is basically that the entire world is speculating that Michael is molesting this kid. The police and DCFS are investigating him for it. Michael kidnaps and imprisons the family, forces them to make a video claiming he's not molested by Gavin. And then after, after all of that, he molests Gavin for the very first time. So that's the new timeline that they went to court with. And then even though their charge sheet claimed, Gavin claimed initially that he was molested five, time, five times, by the time they got to court, that changed to two times. Now, I don't know why he changed it from five times to two times. It was probably because of the shortened timeline that they had to change it from five molestations to two molestations. You know, so you've got a kid who's changing dates, changing the amount of time he's molested. The whole timeline makes no sense. And the whole thing was just so absurd. And, and this doesn't even get into like the Arvizos credibility issues and all that. But that's basically what they went to trial with. And it just gives you an idea how different that is from what was reported in the press. Because at least for me, I don't remember hearing any of that in the press. I do remember hearing some of the credibility issues about the Arvizos. Like I remember the press saying that they had sued JC Penny for uh, sexual molestation for 150 grand. I do remember that, that uh, Janet had committed welfare fraud, that they had, um, they ran these fundraisers for Gavin's cancer, even though they had health insurance. I remember hearing those things, but I don't remember the press ever clearly explaining the timeline or the changes in the charges as time went on. And I think if they had explained those things to the public, 
a lot less of the public would have taken those allegations seriously, and they would have come to the same conclusion that the jury ultimately came to. And one of the jurors even said, like, the testimony was so bad, she had to, like, try hard not to break out laughing during parts of, like, the court case, because it was that ridiculous. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, on this trial, there's a couple that you talk about, but they asked the guy, is this the magazine uh, yes. that you saw are you sure it's the one it's right and then and then they show the jury they say okay it's a matter of fact he's saying he had this uh, playboy or whatever it is right and then they said this wasn't published till a year later this is yes. like y- y- you're totally wrong about this you're making up stuff what happened is they found some like magazines with nude females and like locked away in michael's bedroom which implied he was like your typical heterosexual male And so the police tried to get around that by saying he used these magazines to basically prepare Gavin for molestation. And so during their police raid, they took these magazines out of Neverland. But what they failed to pay attention to is these magazines were published around November of 2003, and Gavin had last been to Neverland in early March 2003. So at the grand jury hearing, and they said this was an honest mistake, but that's kind of hard to believe, They basically handed the magazine to Gavin, right? So he put his hands on it, and then they sent it out for fingerprint analysis. And the fingerprint analysis came back and said, well, Gavin's fingerprints are on this and Michael's fingerprints are on this. But the reason they were caught is because then um, Michael's attorney asked Gavin, is this the magazine that Michael showed you? And Gavin's like, yeah, yeah, that's definitely the magazine. And then Michael's attorney asked Gavin to read the date on the magazine, And then it was clear that the magazine was published like almost a year after Gavin was last at Neverland. So he he couldn't have seen that magazine, you know, when he was at Neverland. It's just physically impossible. And that's when they realized that, oh, it's because Snedden had handed to him at the grand jury. That's how his fingerprints got on it and obviously got dismissed or, you know, got thrown out of the court, you know, and Snedden apologized and said it was an honest mistake, which I don't believe for a fact. But that's one of many that you yeah. bring up, that then I find out that even with your book that does a, a, just a great job of in, encompassing what was going on and exposing the fraud of it, there were other people that have looked into this and a few investigators have, have brought up stuff and you just go, I can't believe there's so much stuff here. That, uh, like, that the police are totally corrupt for bringing these charges or not even double-checking or at least doing diligence on both sides of the story. Like if the guy, he wasn't there, these kids are lying. And, and what about their parents? And how many, I guess you could go now into the, um, the other celebrities that were hit up by these people. Yeah, so this family, like, they befriended, they tried to befriend like Jay Leno and Kobe Bryant and Chris Tucker. And Chris Tucker actually went to Michael and said, you need to get away from this family. They're not trustworthy. They went after actor George Lopez and basically Gavin's father. So Gavin left his wallet behind, I think intentionally at Lopez's home. And then his father called Lopez and said, oh, Gavin left his wallet there. I'm going to come pick it up. And then he accused, he told Lopez that there were $300 in it that were missing. And Lopez is like, I didn't even see this wallet. I didn't take any money out of it. So Lopez basically called him an extortionist to his face because he was basically trying to just get Lopez to give him money that supposedly was in this wallet and whatnot. The whole J.C. Penny thing is like so sketch. You know, they basically Gavin got stopped for shoplifting, and then his mother said the J.C. Penny guards sexually harassed her. And I think the store just wanted to do away with the case, so they paid her 150 grand to go away, which is, I think, what they were hoping with Michael, which is why they went to the civil attorney that did the 1993 case. 
is they were hoping to kind of just make a quick buck off of it to be like, go away, here's some money, leave me alone kind of thing. But it didn't work out that way in this case because the laws had changed and that just wasn't going to happen this time around. There was going to be a criminal case before there could be any sort of civil payout. It's just a really sad story. You know, it's clearly a family of scammers. and Yeah, right. The family of scammers. And the sad part is that it jaded my view of Michael and his legacy and his music. It, 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 it takes an awful lot of, I mean, I had to read your whole book and then I went through a few other, I found a few other videos. Uh, there was one book you mentioned, Aphrodite Jones. Yes. You said that so she, she was going to, go ahead, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so that's an interesting story. So she is actually a New York Times bestselling author. I think she had at the time six or seven New York Times bestsellers, all written, written or most of them written about various famous court cases like the Scott Peterson case, and whatnot. And she went to various publishers that she had worked with, and she wanted to publish a book about the trial. And every single publisher told her they had no interest in publishing her, no interest in publishing her book because they didn't want to publish a positive book about Michael Jackson. And she said, "My book is not even a you know about Michael Jackson. It's about the the trial, you know." But the book came to the same conclusion as the jury did, and the publishing industry just had no interest in that whatsoever. So the public never got to hear fair, and she ended up self-publishing her book. It's called The Michael Jackson Conspiracy, I think. Well, I went online to see if it's even available. There's only two copies available, and it was like $400 or something like that. Yeah. I, I mean, it was like, wow. Yeah, so it's, it, the, yeah, it just shows you that the media and the publishing industry had no interest in putting anything positive out about this guy. You know, and so I hope readers that read the book think about why, why that is. You know, it's certainly not profit, like, because anything Michael Jackson that's positive does sell. You know what I mean? Like, his music still sells tremendously to this day, no matter how many times they try to cancel him. Yeah, that's another thing that happened. They really tried to say, our radio station's not going to play anymore, Uh, you know, this guy. And, uh, yeah, and you have to you have to question why. Like, why is the one artist who's outspoken in his music, why are they trying to censor his music and not trying to censor all the superficial stuff that gets played constantly on the radio? You know, because I think people don't understand the impact that an artist can have on society. Because if you've got somebody singing, like, anti-war songs, you know, like Michael singing in his music, like, what did these soldiers come here for if they're for peace, then why is there war? Did God say that they could decide who will live and who will die? Those are not the kind of songs you want people listening to, right? Or, like, they don't care about us, you know, or the song about the JFK assassination. You don't want the public listening to those types of songs if you're running an empire, right? You just don't want that. So, it's better to just smear the crap out of the guy, get people to stop listening to his music. And, you know, you you do have to question how, how controlled is Hollywood, how controlled is the music industry. And, you know, it's fine. You know, you can be a superstar if you sing the typical superficial songs or make the typical superficial films. But if you want to educate the public or you want to mobilize the public You know, like that anti-war song I just mentioned, it's called We've Had Enough, which is basically said, you know, in that song, he's like, you've got it. They've got to hear it from me. They've got to hear it from you. They've got to hear it from us because we've had enough of these wars. Right. You don't want the public listening to those kind of songs, which are trying to mobilize people to act. And even going back to Man in the Mirror in 1988, which is 
which really kind of started the trend of him writing more meaningful music. Because in the early 80s, 80s, his music was really superficial, you know, like Thriller and Billie Jean. And, you know, those are really superficial songs. But his songs later in life became much more meaningful. And you don't really want people listening to songs that will mobilize them to act, that will mobilize them to protest, that will mobilize them to question power. You want like a dumbed down society if you're an empire. You know what I mean? And so... I don't know what happened to Michael. I don't know who was involved in all these smear campaigns, you know, but I think those are fair questions to ask, you know, and he certainly thought there was a conspiracy to destroy him. There's no doubt that he thought that, whether that was just paranoia on his part or whether there was truth to what he thought. I think people have to decide that for themselves. Yeah, very good. But when, after you read this book and maybe you'll just sit back and absorb that and digest it. Uh, you go, police, how could they even bring these charges? District attorney, you know, you must have some investigators on your staff. And when you see this constant case of shucksters or whatever, hucksters, whatever you want to call them, extortion, families, just all lining up. Yeah, because it's so easy because if the media accepts it at face value, then anybody who wants money can just raise their hand and the media will just, you know, promote you. All you have to do is raise your hand. And that's really easy to get people to do that, you know. Well, and in this case, you have an unusual character who seems to be like the perfect target. Yes. Oh, he was definitely an easy target. And I go into the go into in the book, you know, things like his vitiligo and the burns on his scalp and his kind of childlike character. And so I, I try to humanize him in the book and I try to kind of explain what he went through, you know, what kind of brought, brought about all those things. And so... Because the first half of the book is re- really his life up to 1993. So I hope to really humanize him. So by the time you get to the allegations, you're already really sympathizing with this person and have a better understanding of this person and view them as a human being rather than this kind of, you know, like wacko jacko or whatever. And I quote tons of people that worked with him, that knew him, that were friends with him. And so Hopefully, by the time people get to the the chapters in the book that deal with those allegations, they already see him as a human being and no longer as this odd character. That's what is astounding, that the number of people that stuck up for him. And after I read the book, I'm looking on YouTube for counter to the documentary, counter to these um, the hit pieces. And there's interview after interview after everyone who worked there, worked there, said, you know, no. And if this was going on, I would have known about it. They all kind of know, yeah, he got hit up by extortion. And then once an insurance company decided to pay out, they the rest of them just said, well, even if, you know, we'll, like they, you had it in uh, audio there that um, I'm going to wreck his career. Yes. Yeah. No, he was definitely taken down. There's no doubt about it. You know, this was very deliberate and intentional. Yeah. It's just a really, really sad story, I think. It makes you wonder also, you know, whether an example was being set for other artists who may perhaps consider writing such music in the future or, you know what I mean, trying to mobilize society in the future to say, like, no, know your place. You know, we can, you know, we'll promote your music. You, You can make millions of dollars, but don't, you know, don't question the empire, so to speak, or this will happen to you, too. That's kind of how I interpret his story. That's just my interpretation. You know, I think people need to interpret it for themselves, you know, what it all means. Um, But I think it's a story that needs to be told regardless, you know, of how people interpret it. Because 
I would say it's criminal the way he was treated. I mean, oh, it is. And that's the really eye-opening to me, takeaway conclusion of reading your book, that just how corrupt the district attorneys and the police and the investigators and the, what was it, like a 75-man SWAT team? Yes. coming to, You know, and then and then to find out, oh, it wasn't like a, like a three-ring circus daily there. There was people, he wasn't there that often. He wasn't Correct. there, but he his staff took in all these various people over the years. So there was over, I'll pick a number, 100,000 people that may have been there over the years, you know. Yeah, his house manager testified that hundreds of thousands of kids had yeah. visited Neverland um, with these various events over the years. So, yeah, it's in the hundreds of thousands. Right. And that's what's astounding to me, just uh, the fact that that they were so crooked to allow these charges, they didn't investigate them. And then in spite of the facts, if the facts turned around, they well, we're still going forward. We must have made a mistake or like the one I brought up about the magazine is just one of them, but it's, it's like, uh, I think, I don't know if you wrote it or wherever, but it says like, people in the jury, they roll their eyes like, oh, we are just hearing this one after another. What next? And then yes. on 14 different counts, they uh, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Right. Yeah. If you, if you listen to that on YouTube, it's almost like five minutes. The reading, I think I timed it. It was like slightly under five minutes. It took to read the verdicts. Because there were 14 charges, so they had to read each one and then read not guilty. So I'm sure that was an excruciatingly long five minutes for MJ. And then everybody testified that it was not even remotely celebratory after the fact. Like, it was really um, somber on the way home. You know, it was really, it was more like just thank God it's over. Like, there was no celebrating or anything like that. It was like... I could relate to that. And also the, the fact that the night before, the district attorneys... We're all yeah. celebrating. Somebody saw them in a hotel having a party and toasting each other and say, oh, yeah, we did good. We did good. You know? Yes. Yeah. So it's just a sad story. Yeah. It's a really sad story. And I hope my book also really introduces people to his music because I do think he wrote a lot of beautiful music later in life which nobody really knows about. Like even the JFK assassination song, I bet you 99% of people who study the JFK assassination don't even know that Michael Jackson wrote a song about it. And he's uh, I didn't know. I didn't know. The greatest selling, greatest, greatest selling artist of all time, still to this day, I think. And people don't know he wrote. And that, that's how effective propaganda is, that you get the greatest selling artist of all time writing a song about J- the JFK assassination and nobody knows about it. Because they're too busy speculating about whether he's a child molester, you know, so it's very effective. Well, all I can say is thank you for writing it because it was so interesting. And the legal aspect of it as, you know, it just makes me really reflect uncomfortably how crooked are these things, you know. Like if they got the fix in for you uh, from the top down, they'll railroad somebody. Yeah, exactly. It's... um. And thank you for reading the book, because I know it's not a, not a subject you typically cover. But yeah, I think it's, it's important for people to read, not so much for Michael, but to understand the bigger picture of how manipulative the press is and how, to your point is, to your point, how easy it is to railroad someone if you're in a position of power and you want to railroad someone. It's, it's quite easy to do that. Well, as I said off the top, I really respect your research work. So, you know, even whatever your next book is about, sign me up for that. I'm going to read because I know you did good work. And and this is just another uh, feather in your cap, I guess. Like, wow, what a story. 
and I the fact that I didn't know a lot about it and the fact that I, I may have even bought into some of those accusations you know and let's just say I was neutral but now I feel bad for even being 50 50 on some items that you know I don't know what else can be done about it because unfortunately he passed away even around that you know uh, yeah it's kind of a, a little little bit uh, troubling yeah and it's you know, to be honest, that's why I looked into it. I didn't intuitively, I didn't think he did it because I, you know, I was really very familiar with his music and just how much empathy he had and whatnot. So intuitively, I never thought he did it, but I didn't know. And that's why I looked into it. And I myself felt guilty after I looked into it because, you know, a part of me did question it. That's why I looked into it because a part of me was like, well, is there some truth to this? Like, you know, and so after I looked into it, I was like, Jesus Christ, like, you know, and I felt guilty myself. I was like, how could I ever have even for one second thought that this could be true? And that's part of the reason I felt almost obligated to write the book, because that story needs to be told and people need to understand, you know, what happened to him and why it happened to him. And Well, well the credit to you and to other researchers, if they put on the other hat and say, well, could I be wrong about this? Maybe I should look into it further. So I have many topics where I don't just blindly say, well, what if I'm wrong? Maybe I should look on the other side. And in this case, when you expose what was going on, I said, oh, my God, like we said, we feel bad for even believing a tenth of it, right? And um, Yes. But I highly recommend the book. Where can people buy it? It's available on Amazon and other outlets as well. And it's in all four formats, paperback, ebook, hardback, and audio. The audio will be a little bit longer. It'll be a few weeks, I think, before that's available. But the other formats are available. Oh, very good. Okay. Well, I think at arm's length, we've, we've covered the topic of the book. I'll give you an opportunity. Is there anything you want to bring up that I didn't ask about? Or uh, No, I guess I'll just say that it's, it's a very different topic. But it's very similar thematically to my first book about JFK, which is basically how promoting peace and unity and calling out power is just not good for one's reputation, one's career, one's well-being, etc. So thematically, it's very similar to my first book, even though it's a very different topic. The crime part of it, the trial, you know, the fraud of the Warren Commission that we all know too well. So you go, oh, it's happened again. It's happened. That's why we should learn about these items of history, to keep them from happening again. Yeah, and it just reminds us, yeah, to be more skeptical in the future when something happens in the media, to, to question it, no matter what it is. Yeah, well, I do question it a bit. But I want to thank you again for writing this, and I want to promote it. I don't think anyone will have any regrets after purchasing your book. It's just really good, and it's a compelling story, and it may change your mind about what you thought of, of somebody, especially uh, the legal system. And thank you, Len, for having me on. I know it's a controversial topic, so I really appreciate the platform and the opportunity. Yeah, but I don't find it that controversial. Well, anyway, regardless, I'm just saying thank you for writing it. Yeah, thank you. All right. Okay, well, I guess we'll wrap it up then. What's on the horizon for you? Oh, I have no idea. Taking a break after this for a little bit. <laughs> All right. Very good. You've earned it. But keep me in the loop. Email me anytime or call me if something uh, new or you're writing about something. I'm only too glad to um, promote your good research work. Okay. Thank you. I will definitely will do. All right. Thank you very much, Monica. Okay. Thanks. Good night. Bye. You're listening to Black Op Radio. 
Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Leno Sanic, and we're joined by researcher, author, Jim DiEugenio from Los Angeles. Good evening, Len. Jim, I hear it's raining down there. Tell me what's going on. It's been raining for about the last 48 hours. This very rarely happens down here, but it's really been raining pretty hard for the last two days, maybe a little bit longer. You know, the thing is, coming from back east, I was used to thunder showers. You know, we don't have thunder showers out here because there's no humidity in Southern California. But it's been pretty bad for the last. I think it's going to be going away tomorrow. But I'm still around, Len. Okay, I'm still kicking. And I haven't been on your show lately because you've had all these big names. Okay, so uh, <laughs> so I guess you're slumming it tonight. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I enjoy talking to you because I get to learn what's going on in Los Angeles area and then in California. And, you know, if people are doing something JFK related, you know about it. And mm-hmm. so that's what I enjoy. Well, most I mean, of the time I do, yes. And not only that, a lot of things are in the works, right? Somebody's yeah, working now there's on a couple of things I should recommend to you. I think I told you, you should have Gary Aguilar on because he has two articles up at the site. And I think you should have Andrew on again, okay, because of his reporting on the Mary Farrell lawsuit up in Northern California. So if I can recommend those to you, I think those would be two people that you'd be interested in having on. Right. Now, as far sure. as Kennedy's and King go and my Substack site, let's get the good news first. On my Substack site, I reviewed, oh, this is the woman I forgot about that you had on before. You had Morris Wolf, you had Rob Reiner, you had Libby Handros. And she talked about their film, her and John Kirby, For Who Tried. I saw the uh, very long extended preview, about an hour long, and I did a write-up on it on my Substack site. That got like 173 views in one night. Uh, I guess a lot of people didn't know about it. So thank God for me and you. That is a pretty good, It's I think it's five bucks on Amazon, and you can actually see it on YouTube also. It's five bucks on YouTube. Now, she's coming out with four more parts, I think, one each on JFK, Malcolm, King, and Bobby Kennedy. You know, I feel a little bit kindred about this because I'm sure you're aware. Me and Lisa Peace co-edited a book called The Assassinations back, I think, in 2003. And that, I believe, was the first book ever on all four major political assassinations of the 1960s. And I I was seriously thinking of trying to do a film on that because I thought it would lend itself very well to a documentary picture. I couldn't I, – I pitched it to one person, Bob Greenwald, okay, and, and he decided not to do it. I just kind of let it go by the by the ways – but John Kirby and Libby Handros have come out with this film, which looks like it's – I thought the preview was actually pretty good. There's a couple – I mentioned in my review at Substack, you know, there's a couple of people that I, I could have done without. But generally, on the whole, I thought it was pretty good. Did you see it? Oh, yeah, for sure. I watched it. Oh, okay. Did you like it? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. So I, I would strongly recommend that. Okay, now we get to the grim news, Okay. Since I haven't been on in a while, two enemies of the truth passed on since I've been gone. Hugh Ainsworth and Edward Epstein. 
And on the Kennedys and King website, I did two retrospectives on both of these uh, rattlesnakes. And I'm calling them rattlesnakes is kind of too nice, okay? But they were definitely people that everybody could have done without. And they were intent on going ahead and screwing over the search for truth and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Ainsworth was around from the beginning. The article I wrote on him is called Hugh Ainsworth is Dead, The Grinch is Gone. This guy was like, you could say, the Prince of Darkness when it came to the JFK case. He tried to say he was almost everywhere on the assassination weekend, and I mean everywhere. He was supposed to be in Dealey Plaza. He was supposed to have been at the scene of the Tippett shooting. He was supposed to be at the Texas Theater. And then he said he was in the uh, basement of the Dallas police headquarters when Oswald was killed by Ruby. Now, I've asked this many times. Can anybody show me one picture of Hugh Wainsworth at any of those places? And there's a lot of pictures. There's even film of the assassination of Oswald. So if anybody can show me one picture, there's literally scores of pictures of Dealey Plaza along with films. All right. So if anybody can show me any picture of of Ainsworth being at any of these places, I I would really like to see it. Ainsworth was a disinformation artist from the very beginning, and he was actually at work on this when the Warren Commission wasn't. In other words, the Warren Commission wasn't even out yet, but he, uh, he threatened them through his columnist friend Holmes Alexander. He said that if the commission... If the commission showed that Oswald was a homicidal maniac, then Ainsworth would not reveal that the FBI knew Oswald was a potential assassin and blew their assignment. In other words, he was threatening them. A shot across the bow right then and there. He was now going to show that Oswald was a hard-driven political radical leftist. All right, And you know how he's going to do this? This was by the information that he says he got from Marina, which was that Oswald had tried to kill Richard Nixon. Now, Len, how bad is bad? Even the Warren Commission did not buy that story, that he had, that Oswald was going to go ahead and shoot Nixon. Look, this was just how obsessed Hugh Wainsworth was, okay, with making Oswald the fall guy and portraying him as some kind of homicidal maniac. There was no local local newspaper announcement Nixon was going to be in Dallas at that time, okay, which is supposedly April of 1963, all right? And according to Michael Granberry's obituary for Ainsworth, the Nixon nuttiness originated with a conversation between Marina and Hugh Ainsworth. So in my opinion, I don't think Marina could have thought that up at that time. I think it was imputed to her by, by Hugh. The, the big BSer, and he used to brag to certain people that he had seduced Marina. Rachel Rendish, a, a researcher in uh, in Dallas, told me that Ainsworth once offered to show her some X-rated photos of Marina, and Rendish replied like this: "Oh yes, I know all about that film and how you boys set her up." She said that was the item you always use for blackmail. I have no interest in seeing it. She said Ainsworth was stunned, okay, at that announcement. 
Then there was the heist of the, the so-called Oswald Diary, which he worked on with Bill Alexander, an assistant DA. He sold it to more than one outlet, cutting Marina, who was a le- had a legal claim, out of the profits of his dealings. All right. He then became an FBI informant on the JFK case. All right. And and for, for whatever, you know, this is something I can't figure out, but I can suspect what happened. See, Holland McCombs was, just generally speaking, the supervisor on the Life magazine re-inquiry into the JFK case. And you can get this out of uh, Tink Thompson's book, Last Second of Dallas. I believe that, well, from what I could see, McCombs was never really interested in doing a real reinvestigation. And he actually was friends with Clay Shaw. So I believe he brought in Ainsworth into his fold to begin to go ahead and twist the story around. Because at the same time he's bringing in Ainsworth, he's terminating his two best investigators, Ed Kern and Tink Thompson. All right. And so almost everything that they got, Kern and Thompson, was cut out of the eventual Life magazine story. And it essentially was turned over to John Conley. And they even gave Arlen Specter a chance to reply. So this is what I think Holland McCombs was doing. All right. And then, of course, Ainsworth was sort of like a pit bull on the Jim Garrison inquiry. All right. He was. Uh, he sent a famous uh, telegram to uh, the White House and the FBI talking about his smear story that he did for Newsweek. See, he found out about Garrison's investigation through the life stringer, Dave Chandler. Okay. And the unsuspecting Garrison actually granted Ainsworth an interview in his home, after which Ainsworth wrote to Holland McCombs saying, they should not let Garrison know that they were playing both sides. This was after the first meeting. All right. I didn't know there were two sides. Okay. That reporters were supposed to be playing. Yeah. But he actually was on, and this is what's really puzzling. KERA is the PBS affiliate in Dallas. He actually, in 1979, he said, I'm not saying there wasn't a conspiracy. I know most people in this country believe there was a conspiracy. I just refuse to accept it, and that's my life's work. So this is the kind of reporter that was allowed to cover the JFK case in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. There was also the thing about him asking to be employed by the CIA, and that was in the early 60s. There's a memo that Malcolm Blunt found from early 1968. And he appears to have gone to Cuba not once, but twice in 62 and 63. So I think it's pretty obvious that Hugh was in the employee of the CIA. All right. Because one of the things he did in New Orleans, see, Ainsworth was essentially working for Clay Shaw's lawyers for a long, long time, for about three years. And one of the things he did is he drove up to uh, Clinton Jackson with his buddy James Phelan because he had gotten, because of his infiltration into Garrison's office, he had gotten a copy of the affidavit that Sheriff John Manchester had made out to Garrison's office. 
Manchester was one of the strongest witnesses that they had from Clinton Jackson because he went over to the car, if I remember correctly, it was a Cadillac, and he asked the driver to show him his license because they had never seen him around there. All right, and this was during a voter rally. And he testified to Garrison that the license revealed that he was Clay Shaw from the International Trademark. He remembered it because he never heard of the International Trademark. Jackson, Clinton Jackson is about 120 miles northeast of New Orleans. Okay, And Ainsworth decided that, like many other cases that he came by in Garrison's office, he was going to try and neutralize Manchester's testimony. And so he tried to bribe Manchester by saying that if he didn't show up at the Clay Shaw trial, he'd get him a job as a CI handler in Mexico for $38,000 per year. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but do you know what that is today? $38,000 in 1968 is over $300,000 today. That's quite a ducal sum. How could he do that if he wasn't working hand-in-hand with the CIA? How could he extend such an offer? Well, Man- I like Manchester's uh, kind of Andy Griffith of Mayberry reply. He said, I advise you to leave the area. Otherwise, I'll cut you a new butthole. So this was Hugh Ainsworth. This was the guy who the authorities in Dallas and the editors at Newsweek allowed to run wild over the JFK territory. And he was still going at it when Oliver Stone's film came out. Hugh Ainsworth, I sum up here, was a piece of human flotsam masquerading as a reporter on the JFK case. That Dallas holds him up as an example of journalism shows how deeply in denial that the city is about Kennedy's assassination to cover up the fall. There's actually a Hugh Ainsworth Award. Do you believe that? This is how bad the Dallas-Fort Worth area is when it comes to the JFK assassination. I mean, that, that is just utterly sickening. Okay, that they would have an award for this guy. Okay, I think we'll do Edward Epstein the next time I'm on. And uh, I want to get, there's a lot of questions that I have here since I haven't been on in a while. All right, so let's get rid of some of these questions. All right, this is, I'm sorry to say, from December the 6th. All right, this is from Mike Murphy. Dear Mr. DiEugenio, The world and its mother knows that Governor Conley always claimed that he was not hit by the first bullet. But after that, which is quite a claim by itself. But in his first interview on November the 27th, the bedside interview in Parkland Hospital, which was recorded on TV and can be found on YouTube, he said, We had just turned the corner. We heard a shot. I turned to my left. I was sitting in a jump seat. I turned to look in the back seat. The president had slumped. He said nothing, and almost simultaneously I had turned, I was hit. Bearing in mind two things, he claimed in his bedside interview that he saw the president had slumped, then almost simultaneously he was hit. So he heard the shot and turned to the president and slumped. Look at the Zafruder film, how long does it take from the car showing Kennedy emerging from the Stemmons freeway sign when everyone says he is hit to when he's leaning towards his wife? And how does a bullet travel? My main point is that he never in any other subsequent interview claimed he saw the president had slumped. Indeed, he claimed in his Warren Commission testimony he didn't see the president from the first shot onwards in Dealey Plaza, 
which leads to the question, was he on the same medication as Dean Andrews, or more likely did somebody get to him? If I may speculate on this point, maybe a good-intentioned friend and fellow politician, say maybe for the instance some like someone like LBJ, warned about the, ju- the visual evidence contradicting the preconceived conclusion of the Warren Commission investigation. All right, and this might be problematic, bearing in mind Oswald's visit with a Russian assassin down in Mexico. And he advised Connolly to drop the visual evidence and keep the Warren Commission hearing evidence that we could save the world from nuclear war and save political face and blame the assassin Anderson Oswald, who was already dead, and allow somebody like Dale Myers to suggest or claim that the bullet that hit the president from behind also hit Connolly in his back and went through him to break his rib, his right wrist, and go into the embedded itself into his left thigh, only to come out later and fall into the hospital stretcher. And more to say that Governor Conley heard the tag shot, which brings in mind Vince Salandria is saying that you are allowed to think a conspiracy took place, but you're not allowed to know it. Keep up the good work. Yours sincerely, Mike from Liverpool. I listen to Black Op Radio every week and would value your opinion, or for that matter, lens, on my view of the November 27th, 1963, John Conley bedside interview, whether you agree with my view or not. Thanks very much. You know, that's a very interesting point, and I think he's actually correct about that being the only time that Conley mentioned turning to his left and seeing that Kennedy had slumped because I think most people think that he turned the other way later in the sequence, okay? And if if he was able to do that, then clearly Kennedy had been hit earlier, okay, than he was. So that's pretty clear evidence. And maybe Mike is right. Maybe somebody got to Conley if he never repeated that very powerful evidence again. But I can't really... Um, I think Millicent Craner once said something about this, all right? Um, Okay, now, he sent me a very long addendum to this, all right, which is so long, it's single-spaced, and it's a little bit over a page long, all right? All right, he says this clarifies his first email. The visual evidence which I referred to Conley saying the president had slumped, I saw as reinforcing the fact that he was always claimed that he was not hit by the first bullet, which hit the president, and therefore negate the claim of somebody like Dale Myers that the shot that Conley heard was the tag shot, which only leaves the possibility that when Conley observed Kennedy reacting to being shot, had himself not realized he was hit, and didn't notice his wrist, <laughs> his rib and wrist bones were broken at this time. You know, a delayed reaction, if you will, and still holding the Stetson hat in his right hand for good measure, which I will never believe myself. Which means, leads me back to your view or your guess that Conley saw Kennedy about 250 to 280 frames of the Z film. I would say having had a look at the Z film again, would say the earliest would be around 262. And the latest frame would be 279, where I'm sure he did see him. At this point, I will finish regards my first email talk at, and my own visual observations of the Z film. All right. Now, I'm going to save this for a later show. 
because it's very long and involved. Okay, and I have to go over it myself to fully understand it. It's his personal analysis of the, of the Zapruder film. You know, these things are always kind of interesting when you get somebody's take on it. All right, but I'll save this for a later time so I can get on to these other these other letters. All right, I have the following questions. Where and how did Oswald disappear past the drive away from the rear of the Texas theater? And have there been any sightings after November 22nd, 1963? All right, the rear of the Texas theater, I think that's Bernard here. And that is John Armstrong's book, Harvey and Lee. Now, if you go in with Jim Douglas, he believes that this is the guy that was seen across the street from the garage and at a, I believe, some kind of fast food restaurant. And the guy from the garage walked across the street and saw a guy that he swore was Oswald. So if, if, if Bernard Hare was really seeing a second Oswald, that's probably where that guy went. And you can look in Jim Douglas's book for that. Does anyone know for sure where the dead body of Officer Tippett ended up? I know that there are theories that his body was used to reconstruct. I, God, that's, that's so ridiculous. I didn't want to read it. Uh, he was at the hospital. I don't know if it was Parkland, but John Armstrong found the notice that his you know his death notice at the hospital his corpse was there okay all right um this is from a guy named arthur and i think he lives in the la area all right so that disposes of that one so let's go to the next one this is december the 21st a guy named Corey. i have spent a lot of time listening to podcasts surrounding the jfk assassination including tonight's episode on Ford Died Trying, which is very good, by the way. One thing that has always bothered me is how Oswald's discharge was downgraded and not fixed. If he was a CIA asset or operative or whatever, the researchers decided he was, then why would they have not taken care of his downgraded discharge? The CIA is the ultimate power in the Department of Defense besides the Pentagon, and if he knew anything about anything, then why should they risk having an asset or being an employee running around with secrets to expose? A disgruntled employee type, it just doesn't make sense to me. They could get him in and out of the Soviet Union with a snap of a finger, but they couldn't resolve his clearance downgrade. Also, on just tonight's uh, Jim DiEugenio take, why would the establishment want to bury Goldwater if he was the ultimate war hawk? That is the second thing that hit me like a ton of bricks. These are two things I would love to have answers to if you could kindly ask your future guests, which, by the way, have gotten a lot of their lives towards solving this case, and I very much respect their work. Goldwater, if you remember, Goldwater for that time period, 1963, 1964, was so far right okay, of most anybody that he was very easy to caricature by both Johnson and by the mainstream media. America was simply not ready for a guy like Goldwater to accept him when he was being more or less pummeled by the media 
almost every day. If you remember, he hinted that he wanted to use atomic weapons in Vietnam. And the Johnson campaign ran a devastating, uh, I think it's called the, uh, the Daisy the Daisy Girl advertisement. You can find it on YouTube, you know, where there's a little girl picking a daisy and you hear this countdown in the background and then they freeze frame her face and you hear this great explosion. Okay. I mean, that was just devastating. All right. To Goldwater's campaign. All right. Uh, by the way, why do they need Goldwater if they had Johnson? Johnson went ahead and escalated the war anyway. All right. Uh, and by the way, Goldwater was very angry about that. You know, that they blamed him for doing something that secretly Johnson was going to do anyway. Um, well, as far as the discharge goes, I mean, a Russian defector uh, to make it. E I mean, that would, I think, make him even more suspicious. I mean, here's a guy <laughs> that the Pentagon is going to go ahead and help raises discharge after he'd already gone to the Soviet Union for two years, you know, I think they would smell the high heaven, you know, of something very fishy. And I believe this is what Dean Andrews was working on, okay, uh, in that summer of 1963. Okay, and, and if you recall, Clay Shaw had sent him uh, to see Andrews about this problem. So maybe it would have been solved anyway. Well, We'll never know. All right. Okay. Another one from December 21st. This is from the same guy, Corey. A third and interesting question to please ask your guests. So Morley says that David Phillips was a trust fund kid from Houston and just decides to take the money in his younger years, assuming post-college, and start up a newspaper in Chile. In that capacity, runs into CIA agent Howard Hunt. He recruits him as a disinformation for the CIA. What test fund kid from Texas in well ever decides to start up a newspaper in Chile? Very strange. I recall hearing from another JFK researcher that University of Houston was a huge conduit for the CIA or other intelligence agencies. Thanks again, Len. Well, you know, I would kind of def I tend to agree with that. Uh, in fact, that's what Victor Marchetti once told me about Phillips, that he had a, a deep cover in his early days, all right, uh, this newspaper thing, and he was also an actor, okay, and so maybe that's true, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure. There's never been a full-scale biography of Phillips, which is really weird. I think there's a guy who's working on one, but we really need something like that. Okay, now Corey was very active on December 21st because he, uh, wait a minute, he's got one, he's got two more. Okay, hey Lynn, so Cuba, I've never even talked to anyone who's been there. As a Canadian, maybe you have been there, have you? No, no right. I haven't. And actually seen the country with a real non-vetted take on what you saw. I did see a documentary on guys trying to work on old American cars that they can no longer find parts for. So they started making them on their own. Can they really not log onto the internet there and order something from Amazon, etc.? Is it really that bad or is it another American media thing bending the truth to the masses? 
No, I, I think, look, the only guy since Kennedy who tried to do anything about the uh, Cuban embargo was Obama. And he didn't get very far. If you recall, he visited Cuba and talked to Fidel's brother. All right. But as far as breaking the uh, embargo, the Republicans just got all up in arms about that. I don't understand that because I believe that that, that would be mutual beneficial to both the United States and Cuba. All right. And as far as I know, no, you can't get anything from Cuba in the United States, although I'm not an expert on that. Okay, here we go again. Corey, he was really busy on December 21st. So iHeartRadio, Reiner and Soldat O'Brien. Tosh Pumley being mentioned makes me want to hit the stop button. Not a reliable source, according to many of the best researchers. Too many inconsistent accounts. Every time I listen to these podcasts and hear a name like that twice tossed into the mix, it gives me the image of a turd in a punch bowl. Only way to fix it is to toss the whole thing out as garbage. But okay, so Reiner O'Brien has solved it. Sheesh. Okay, Len, I won't bother you again for a while, but I think you really want to get to the bottom of this thing and so do I. We can't have people spewing crap. Thank you for all your hard work, Len. Well, I think a lot of people agree with him on Tosh Plumley, and it's unfortunate that he made it onto the podcast, which I, I haven't reviewed yet because I haven't listened to the whole thing, but I will do that. Okay, it will be reviewed. Also, just in my defense, the reason I had Rob on is because his podcast was getting millions of listens. That's and I, true. You know, I just thought, look at how about we listen to him, even if I didn't agree with everything, but I thought, let's just listen to him talk about it because he has had an interest in this ever since he was a teenager, right? So, and let's just say everybody's doing their best. Like you say, as soon as um, somebody wrote to me and said, we were just talking about Fletcher. He says, well, I don't subscribe to Fletcher Prouty. I think he's, I'm not sure if I'm got it, but he, he's leaving stuff out or he's not saying everything, whatever. It's like, well, all you've got to do is read his book, The Secret Team, and the, the other groundbreaking book, Understanding Special Operations, which, you know, with Dave Radcliffe, and learn from that. So... If if you want him to name, you know, everyone and all that, and he doesn't, and you feel something's being left out, well, just be happy. I am, my point of view, is for what I learned about the thing, you know? Yeah, sometimes, you know, when people criticize Jim Garrison, I tend to uh, to throw the baby out with the bathwater thinking, you know, oh, God, you know, I can't sit through this. But the only thing is, is that we've given many people over the years the benefit of the doubt. You know, okay, whatever, let's see what the guy's got to say. And then finally, you know, you know what, this is just the uh, same old. And then mixed in with that is disinformation, just disinformation. Mm -hmm. You know, like y you wonder, like some of these guys that you were just talking about, how much are they paid to write this crap when you know it's not true? Well, I think in the case of Ainsworth and Epstein, it was quite a ducal sum. You know, the uh, for instance, in, when we get to talk about Epstein the next time, he, in his book, Legend, which I think was published in 76 or 77, that was financed by Reader's Digest. He had a, an entire budget of $2 million, which would be about $10 million today. How many people get that big a budget for a JFK book? 
Okay, I can't think of anybody. Yeah, and then you find out that Reader's Digest is a, an offshoot of... Uh, oh, yeah, this. they're they're in bed with the CIA. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just like Wikipedia these days. It's not only can I not trust Wikipedia, I almost think the opposite now. It, it's such a, a joke of an encyclopedia that I look to the back pages to see if people have been trying to edit, and their edits have been taken down, and, you know, it's just... It's, it's uh, what a shame. Okay, um, here's one from Rich Coleman on December 22nd. Something I've wondered about for some time. I hope I'm not behind the curve on this. The limo slowed or stopped, but there was a lead car in front of it. Did it keep going at speed or slow down or stop first, forcing the limo to do likewise? If the latter, then I would suspect the driver of that car more than the, the limo driver Greer of being in on it. You know something? I really don't know the answer to that question, but I don't think I don't think that the lead cars slow down. Okay, that's an interesting question, which I should actually look into, which I will. There's an accompanying question by Mike Ramsdale that I also have to do some research on. He suspects that the bullet through Sean Conley went through the, the back of the jump seat. I don't think that's true. Okay, I don't think that's true. But that's another thing I'm going to have to look into to be for sure about that. But that's another very – I'm glad I, we have these very interesting questions. They're, they're very interesting, very intelligent also. Okay, from Barbara, Barbara S., a very faithful listener, okay? December the 31st. Has anyone researched or wrote an article on Harry Holmes? I read his testimony from Volume 7. It was so strange the way he insinuated himself into the investigation. Rather than view the motorcade from street level, he watched from his fifth floor office with binoculars. Why didn't he go down to street level? How many times did you get a chance to see a president on your doorstep? A post office employee tells him that Oswald was a P.O. box renter without anyone asking the employee to do research. I wondered why wasn't the Warren Commission interviewing that employee or all employees who might have served Oswald? Holmes gets current copies of magazines that might carry the gun ad that Oswald allegedly ordered the rifle from. Holmes initiated the search for the postal money order using the amount of the cost of the rifle to find it. As the buyer of the money order filled out the form, there was no other way to trace it, according to Holmes. Now, according to Holmes, they initially were using the wrong amount, but Holmes or another inspector discovered the correct amount using the magazine. On the day Oswald was lynched, Holmes again inserts himself into the investigation. According to his testimony, he decides to go to the police office after he and his wife go to church. He drops her off and says he decided he was needed there. Now, in the testimony, there's an off-the-record break requested by Bellin. Why? After they were done questioning, or should I say interrogating Oswald, Holmes leaves with Secret Service agent Sorrells and suggests they go to his office because they would have to complete an overall view of the area. Was Holmes expecting something to happen? And why did Holmes observe the motorcade from his office with binoculars rather than going to the street level and again wanted to observe the Oswald transfer from his office rather than stay in the police headquarters? There was a short puff piece on Holmes on the uh, post office website. The New York Times published a critical review of JFK by Tony Lewis 
which cited Holmes' testimony on January the 9th, 1992, to which Oliver Stone replied on February the 3rd, 1992. The New York Times published a letter from Edward Early dated January 29th, 1992, which questioned Holmes being in on the interrogation of Oswald, to which Douglas Cron replied on February the 19th, citing David Bellin's notes in final disclosure that Holmes had important involvement because the alleged rifle was sent through the mail. Kenneth Ron posted an interview of Holmes, which is more extensive than his Warren Commission testimony, and I found it quite disturbing. It was quite callous concerning Jackie Kennedy. It did suggest that not taking notes was a deliberate strategy of the Dallas police. He stated that notes taken would have to be turned over to a defense lawyer, so none of the participants took notes when they questioned suspects. I believe it's from No More Silence by Larry Sneed. On a different subject, I listened to Mark Lane read his testimony to the Warren Commission. He mentioned the various altered photos of Oswald pictured with the rifle and, pist and pistol. Was it ever determined how or why these altercations to the rifle were made and by whom? I listened to From the Archives, The President's Assassin Speaks, from Brian Fry's YouTube channel. It's from a Key Records. It was 11th in a series of anti-subversive albums. Its narrator is Billy James Hargis, who inserts himself as a moderator of the 82163 WDSU Oswald debate, which covers the first 20 minutes of the record. Hargis then goes for the, for the next 20 minutes on to attack Oswald's actions, beliefs, and activities. Hargis then attacked Castro, Cuba, and the communists in general. Then Hargis goes <clears throat> for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee founders. The one that caught my attention after I researched them was Richard Gibson. He was revealed to be a CIA spy. Gibson had long been suspected as such by his associates. But contrary to government claims, they cannot release files to protect sources. They did release his file. Gibson was one of the head honchos at the FPCC. All right. Thus exposing a living agent to possible harm. This story was covered by Jeff Morley in Newsweek and on his blog in 2018, as well as by others. Hargis was a preacher to, with ties to the John Birch Society. The upshot seemed to be that the CIA was determined to destroy the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which I think is true. Oswald's association with it after the assassination did destroy the FPCC. So was Oswald's membership in his complete disregard of the FPCC not to start a chapter, a deliberate campaign to destroy the fair. Yeah, I, I believe that that's true. And I think John Newman believes that that's true. And I think Paul Blow believes that that's true. That by 1963, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee was on a downward spiral that would end, of course, in late November with the destruction of that committee. All right. Um, and I believe that that was the aim of the CIA and also the FBI from about 1961. There was both a CIA and FBI operation against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Um, 
Now, was it ever determined how the backyard photographs? Well, J Jack White did a video on that. He thinks the way that they were forged. And that's still an interesting video, and I think you can still get it. Okay. Uh, how he believes that th th those were faked. All right. And it's, a, it's about an hour long. All right. As far as Harry Holmes goes, some of the best takedowns of Harry Holmes, I think, are from George Michael Avika uh, in his first book, And We Are All Mortal, which paints him as a triple agent, okay, the, for the post office, for the FBI, and the Dallas police, all right? And then there's also Ian Griggs, No Case to Answer. That has a very interesting chapter on Harry Holmes. It's about 20 pages long. And in fact, after there came out, the Holmes family tried to apologize for what Harry Holmes did in relation to the JFK assassination. And that was read at a JFK Lancer uh, conference. All right. So, yes, Harry Holmes was a very suspicious character, all right? Um, and what he was doing in on the interrogation of Oswald, that's a very good point. What the heck was he doing there, and why did the Dallas police let him in? Probably because he was their agent out in, in the post office. I agree with that. Okay, January the 8th, Tony Noble. Jim, I'm a big fan and been a listener of Black Op Radio for years. I have a question that's been bothering me for a long time. As much work has been done on the JFK assassination, everyone's, everyone's seen ends in Dealey Plaza. Has anyone ever worked on the scenario of what if Oswald had woke up with the stomach flu that morning and blew their patsy or if the rain kicked in again and caused the bubble top to go back on the limo? Or what if the motorcade route somehow got pushed away from the kill zone, resulting in Kennedy actually making it to the trademark? Just wondering if anyone has ever looked into the trademark scene. Who was there? What other bad actors were found in Dallas that day that may have been part of a backup team? Whether it's a trademark or another kill zone between Dallas, the Dealey Plaza, and the trademark. Almost every great plan has a backup plan. And too many things had to line up perfectly that day for the bad guys. Just wondering if anybody has ever gone there. Tony Nobles in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, see, I, I'm of the persuasion that largely based on the work of Paul Blow, if there, Kennedy was not getting out of 1963 alive, all you have to do is take a look at some of the prior plots, which Paul has done some very good work on. And JFK Revisited in the book and in the film, I talked about these, all right, and the ones most, that most prominently jump out at me are the one in Tampa and the one in Chicago. Those are both in November. But as Paul Blow notes, that there were many other plots to kill Kennedy that did not, for whatever reason, work out. But those two are very, very interesting all right, there's also the one in L.A. with Von Marlowe that Paul mentions in his work. All right, and many of them have the Fair Play for Cuba Committee involved in them. 
So that's more evidence that one of the reasons that the CIA wanted to do that was to kill two birds with one stone, to get rid of the fair play for Cuba committee and to get rid of Kennedy. All right. If for whatever reason, something went wrong that day, and I don't believe there was much reason to think that, then I believe that they would have just delayed it for another week or two and tried somewhere else. Just remember, Chicago, Tampa, and Dallas were all in the space of three weeks. Let me repeat that. Chicago, Tampa, and Dallas were all in the space of three weeks. This is how bad, okay, the uh, the whole FBI and the Secret Service were. I mean, they didn't suspect something was up when, in fact, any objective person would have to, hey, wait a minute, they tried to kill this guy in Chicago, in Tampa, and now they got him in Dallas, and nobody says anything on the Warren Commission, you know? And that's true. Nobody did say anything on the Warren Commission. So that's what I believe would have happened if for some other reason or, or other that the Dealey Plaza operation would have been found lacking. All right, Paul Trudeau, were the blood splatters on the motor vehicle ever analyzed? No, I don't think they were. Not officially anyway. Sherry Feaster, in her book, Enemy of the Truth, does a pretty good job on that because that was her specialty. Okay, blood spatter analysis. So if you want to get a, some information on that, that's the book. Uh, she passed away a couple years ago. But that's the book to go ahead and, and take a look at. All right. Uh, Matthew Ward, January the 18th. Mr. Eugenio, big fan, always love reading your material, and especially listening to you when you're on various podcasts these days. I have an interesting memory of my college days at University of Texas at Arlington that might intrigue you. I graduated in 2002 with a bachelor's degree in journalism. I was a reporter and section editor at the university's Shorthorn student newspaper. Loved every minute of it. I recall taking an upper-level journalism course close to graduation, taught by a professor who was a former Fort Worth Star Telegram reporter or editor. I forgot his name. He was fairly well-known in the Dallas-Fort Worth media circles. He brought in guest speakers and students could write papers about the speakers and turn them in for a grade. I interviewed Mike Cochran, a famous ex-AP reporter, who also had some Kennedy experiences. I also remember I did a paper on Hugh Ainsworth, interviewing him and everything. While I concentrated on his career from the, his perspective, I do recall his lecture in class about the Kennedy assassination. I recall his recounting of being at all three important places, Dealey Plaza, the Texas Theater, and the DPD garage. Let's not forget the tippet shooting. I also read, that's me, not him. I also recall some disparaging remarks he made about Jim Garrison. The one story he told the class was about being at Garrison's home in New Orleans and listening as Garrison spoke in numbered codes to people on the phone. Ainsworth essentially cited the episode as some example of how Garrison was insane or something. I'll never forget how later in life as a journalist, I became fascinated with the assassination research material and the work of various first and second era researchers, Mark Lane especially, and that small town editor, Penn Jones. I read Garrison's book later 
But before that, I read his Playboy interview and it surfaced that memory of Ainsworth's story in my journalism class. It struck me how lucid and forthright the Playboy interview with Garrison was compared to what I remembered Ainsworth saying about the man. Polar opposite. Later, as I got deeper into the puzzle, yearbooks, Morley, Newman, etc., I was disturbed what Ainsworth had actually been doing all along. If I had a time machine, I'd go back armed with what I know now and tie this journalist down and what his motivations were for these unethical shenanigans, politics, money, fame, idiocy. What a disservice to history and our country. Shameful. These thoughts have obviously been with me for a while now. Your story on Ainsworth's recent death brought them all back. I'll never forget in college when I told my student newspaper advisor I was interviewing Ainsworth for class. I was excited. (laughs) And he told me basically, yes, pretty famous journalist. It's a shame he ended up at the Washington Times, which where I believe Ainsworth ended his career. By the way, Ainsworth did end up at the Washington Times, that right-wing loony newspaper. Given the current state of the world, the political polarization in America, the out-and-out propaganda blasting from every corner of the information sphere, the Washington Times seems about where Ainsworth should have ended up. Indeed, it makes a lot of sense today. Thanks for all your eliminating work. Like I said, I'm a big fan here. Well, thank you very much. That's interesting. A guy who admired Ainsworth, okay, and then came to see the light about the guy later. All right, now... Um, here is January the 25th, I think your audience should know that Harry Connick passed away. Harry Connick was a DA who replaced Jim Garrison after 12 years in New Orleans. There's no doubt that Harry Connick was part of the JFK assassination cover-up because he admitted later on to burning a lot of Garrison's files. This is a very sad state of affairs because I believe that that was some very valuable stuff. When I went down to see him, actually, I believe it was in 1997, he didn't even know he still had a cabinet full of that stuff in there. He had to bring in an assistant to confirm that. And then the ARB got into a battle trying to get that four-drawer file cabinet from Connick. All right. Connick was not a very good DA. John Volz told me when I interviewed him, Volz worked for both Garrison and Connick. And I said, how would you compare Garrison with Connick as a DA? He smiled and said, there is no comparison. Harry Connick couldn't convict somebody if his name was on the bullet. All right. And there were a lot of problems down there. Um, He got called out by the Supreme Court twice for violating the uh, Brady rule. The Brady rule is that you have to give any exculpatory evidence from the DA's office to the defendant. And Harry Connick didn't do this. And he was called out by the Supreme Court twice. All right. On that issue. Uh, And he was actually, I think, sued twice on that. Okay. Um, So, in my opinion, 
Harry Connick was a giant step down for New Orleans. Okay, after uh, he defeated Jim Garrison with a lot of money from a lot of people. Okay, um, and it's 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 and a lot of I won't go into the whole thing, but there's a lot of bad things that happened down there after he attained a DA's office. All right, um, now. Connick ran against Garrison twice. All right. Garrison beat him the first time. The reason he lost the second time was because of that phony second trial on those ersatz, you know, ridiculous um, uh, income tax charges. And the second trial went on during part of the campaign, greatly benefiting Harry Connick. All right, and that's what happened there. Uh, there was no more further pursuit of the JFK case in New Orleans, even though there was a lot of stuff to go on. Um, and that essentially, Garrison's loss, plus those two phony trials he was put through, I think that was partly to send a message uh, to any other DA, you know, if you start snooping into the JFK case, look what we did to Jim Garrison. All right. All right. So I don't have a lot of nice things to say about Harry Connick having actually interviewed him in his office. You know, I was not very impressed. All right. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that, that he's passed on January the 25th. 2024. Thank God we're getting into January now. <clears throat> Carl. Carl Long. Up front and to the point, I don't believe Paul Landis' claim of discovering a pristine bullet atop the back seat of the limo at Parkland ER entrance, nor his purported actions he took immediately by putting the bullet into his pocket, putting the bullet at the foot of the stretcher, of JFK while doctors were urgently worked to save his life in the ER room, that nobody noticed him placing the bullet on the stretcher, that he didn't tell anybody what he found and did, especially his super, uh, Secret Service detail supervisor, neither the FBI, that he didn't submit a written action report of what he saw and did at that time or for the next 60 years because he was recovering from T PTSD. No bullet that could have hit Kennedy or anybody, anything else in the limo, would have zero deformity or loss of mass. Defy laws of physics, just happened to lose its velocity on top of the back seat immediately next to the targeted JFK. Would defy any conceivable trajectory pass after striking anything or anyone in the limo. Failed to roll off the car at high speed to Parkland not been pushed off the car when Mrs. Kennedy raised up in the car seat to retrieve a piece of her husband's brain off the trunk or been brushed off the car or into the car seat by Clint Hill by climbing over the rear seat into the car while it traveled at high speed to Parkland. No person with any common sense or training as a Secret Service agent on presidential protection detail would have been that negligent, stupid, illogical, secretive, self-absorbed at the time for 60 years. 
Further, he tampered with evidence, kept knowledge of evidence secret, interfered with federal investigation of the assassination, unwittingly then purposely participated in the cover-up, let alone Oswald be falsely portrayed as the patsy, contributed to the avoidance of investigation to find the real assassins. In short, he was in dereliction of duty or common sense. Why hasn't a single person, journalist or assassination investigator, pointed out the obvious contradictions, violation of physics, or how bullets react after hitting anything, or commented on the absurdity of his claims? Is it impossible for Paul Landis to know if the bullet he claims to have picked up from atop the limo backseat is the exact same bullet in the National Archives? Why do so many people immediately conclude his story is true, and it's a stretcher bullet? To do so is not based upon a single provable fact or evidence of a reasonable story. As you know, the stretcher bullet was not a round tip, but instead was a pointed tip, as stated by the Parkland staff that discovered it. You are aware of the lack of chain of evidence by the Secret Service and FBI agents that refused to state the stretcher bullet to be the same bullet they are purported to have seen handled in the past onto FBI headquarters. As you already know, the number of grooves in the stretcher bullet changed from six to four while in the government's custody and is not the same bullet initially discovered that's currently in the National Archives. Well, actually, I'm not really aware of that one, about the grooves changing from six to four. So, Carl, if you can send me something on that, I'd like to see it. All right. There are many more reasons not to believe Landis. I do not know what his motives are, but definitely not believe his story as he tells it. Well, it's not true that he's the only one about this. Uh, I pointed out that Vince Palomera did an article for us at Kenny's and King. And Vince did not look uh, with much sympathy on the Landis claims either. All right. If the back shot, if the back shot was what they call a short shot, okay, then I think it's possible for what Landis is saying to have happened. And the evidence for that is that nobody who was at Parkland that um, that night can say that there was a channel, okay, uh, through Kennedy's body. And in fact, that was one of the very disturbing things that happened that night, is that they couldn't find an exit. Now, the other two things he says probably do apply, that if, if such was the case, then wouldn't either Jackie Kennedy or Clint Hill have disturbed that bullet? And that's probably, that's probably a good critique of Landis, because that's that's kind of logical, okay. I I don't know what to think of Landis. I you know I really don't, okay. Um, but I'm glad we got that on the record by one of our listeners. Okay, last one. Uh, a guy named Paul Orshiak in Ontario, Canada. Kudos to your article on Ed Epstein. And Jeff Carter's essay on Fletcher Prouty and Sam 263 in the aftermath. Really liked how Jeff put the criticism of Stone, etc. 
into context. I did not realize that Leslie Galb, the epitome of the Eastern establishment, was so negative in public about Stone, Garrison, Prouty, and the movie JFK. Of course, you would expect writers like Tom Wicker to parrot the Galb line in the media. Um, Leslie Galb, if you don't know, was the editor of the Pentagon Papers. He then went on to become a writer at the New York Times. And yes, he did attack the movie when it came out. All right. Could you comment about McGeorge Bundy? Something has not sit right with me about him and the events of the day of the assassination, as well as the appearance of NSAM 273 so quickly after the assassination. He does not look like a Kennedy loyalist, just as Katzenbach did not look like an RFK loyalist in the aftermath of the assassination. Great work as always, Jim. Uh, first of all, Leslie Gelb was one of these guys who the media trotted out when Stone's film appeared, you know, to criticize the main thesis, which was, I believe, that if Kennedy had lived, there would have been no escalation of the Vietnam War, which I happen to agree with after doing a lot of work on that. But this was something that was too big of a pill. Let's put it this way. It was difficult enough for them to accept the fact that the Warren Commission blew the case since the MSM lined up in their pockets from the beginning. <coughs> to admit that they missed a story about Vietnam, that would have been you know, a right cross followed by a left hook. All right. There's no way in the world that they were going to say that. And Jeff does a nice job explaining that in his article. Although, if you look at it this way, after the Warren Commission volumes were released, it was only three months until Johnson did something that Kennedy was never going to do, which was to go ahead and land American combat troops in Vietnam. And we're supposed to believe that nobody noticed that? That Johnson did something that Kennedy was never going to do? And that he did it three months after the final Warren Commission volumes were issued? Uh, you know, to me, that's very suspicious. That I would think somebody would notice it. Um, Bundy, there's an interesting book about Bundy by Golden, Gordon Goldstein, which is called Lessons in Disaster. And that was going to be a autobiography, ghost written by Goldstein. But Bundy died before it could get started. And so Goldstein eventually wrote the book himself. And I think it's an interesting book. See, one of the things that Bundy confessed to Goldstein is that he really wasn't aware of what Kennedy was doing in Vietnam through people like John Kenneth Galbraith, 
at first, and then Robert McNamara second. And in fact, Goldstein excerpts a, I think it's October the 9th meeting at the White House, in which McNamara is pushing the idea that they have to begin the withdrawal program. And Bundy doesn't know what they're talking about. And later on, when he saw this, after Goldstein had shown him this, he said he realized what had happened. He said that Kennedy had gone around him because he thought he was too hawkish on the war. All right. And he had secretly gone to McNamara through Galbraith. And he had nothing but admiration. Nothing but admiration for what Kennedy had done. Okay. So, I, in my opinion, I'm not as suspicious about Bundy as Fletcher was. Okay. I think Bundy was simply, first of all, I don't think he was a very good national security advisor. Okay. To begin with. I mean, how anybody you know, could not give Kennedy good advice on that whole Bay of Pigs uh, misfire and then want to commit troops into South Vietnam. You know, I just don't think he was a very good national security advisor. And I believe that, as Kennedy thought, I believe that Bundy was at that time too hawkish. Okay, although he did change his tune later on. Okay, and he became a very vociferous critic of uh, of Nixon and Kissinger. In fact, he he really went after these guys, and with their constant escalations and bombings, you know, into Indochina. Now, as far as NSAM two seventy three, Bundy's story was always that after the Hawaii meeting which I think everybody here knows about, okay, um, took place in Honolulu, I think November the 19th to the 21st, okay, that that meeting was supposed to be about what are we going to do in Vietnam with the overthrow of the government, okay? Uh, Kennedy, of course, was not there. He was on his Texas trip. But we do know what Kennedy said, you know, he said words to the effect that when I come back, we're going to have a total review of Vietnam, including how we got there. And by the way, that's double sourced, okay, because uh, Peter Dale Scott mentioned it in his early essay in the book Governed by Gunplay. And he sourced it to a separate a book that was written, I believe, in 1967. Okay, so it's not just Forrestal. It's from this book this, by these two reporters. Okay, now, I think what Fletcher and I think what Jeff accents is that <clears throat> in the rough draft of NSAM 273, there's some differing things, okay, that kind of do not go along with what's in NSAM 263. Now, you can take the suspicious look at that. Or you can just take it from the fact that Bundy was much more hawkish on the war than Kennedy was. But there's no getting around that Johnson altered that and 
made it very, very much worse than it was at the beginning. Okay. Um, and it was his alterations of NSAM 273, which, number one, allowed for direct American intervention, okay, with the DeSoto patrols, because South Vietnam didn't have a Navy. <clears throat> so that had to be direct American intervention, okay, with the uh, with the attacks on the north, with the, with the DeSoto patrols accompanied by the speedboats. And it allowed a much further penetration into Cambodia, all right, than JFK wanted to have. So in those two senses, NSAM-273 did end up in pretty much violation of NSAM-263. But as Fletcher always said, disagreeing with John Newman, okay, that the real divergence in Kennedy's policy was with NSAM-288, all right? And NSAM-288, which I think was written in, in March, that essentially opened up the floodgates to a direct air war over North Vietnam, okay? And, uh, and I, I, I believe that, I agree with Fletcher on that, that that's the real milestone in American intervention, direct American intervention, and anybody can look this thing up. It, mount, it, it maps out a whole air war against North Vietnam, all right? And that, of course, was just the beginning, okay? Now, the road there to NSAM-288 was when Johnson essentially rolled over McNamara, okay? He understood that McNamara was JFK's point man on the withdrawal program. And he went after McNamara on this, okay, two or three times. All right. McNamara should have resigned at this time, but he didn't. All right. And then Johnson did something that Kennedy never did. He actually called the Pentagon into the Oval Office to begin to map out a war against the North. And then that was essentially formalized with NSAM 288, okay? So Bundy, see, there's that, there's that alleged tape that is supposed to be on Air Force Two, I believe, or some other plane that was coming back from Hawaii that Vince Salandria heard about, okay, where Bundy makes this announcement. You know what I'm talking about, Len? Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but I've, I've never heard a transcription or read a transcription of what Bundy actually said on that tape. Okay, now the other interesting thing about Bundy is that when the Warren Commission was being issued, the Warren Report, in September of 1964, Bundy wrote a memo that's about some, I don't know what the exact words were, but something about words of the effect the homosexuals in New Orleans. That's a very interesting comment by him because that was kept out of the one report. So you wonder, how did Bundy know about that? You know, to refer to it like he did. Okay, and that's, and remember, this is September of 1964. We're not going to hear about this until Garrison in 1967. But somehow McGeorge Bundy knew about it. If McGeorge Bundy knew about it, then the FBI had to know about it. 
then the Secret Service had to know about it. And this betrays to me that, that there was a pretty big cover up about what really happening in New Orleans. Okay, concerning the JFK case. Okay, so that's it. There's a couple other things that, uh, like I said, I'll continue later on. I have to do a little bit more reading on. Okay, thank well, you so yeah, much, Len. I'll have Jeff Carter on to talk about that. I think the oh, thing that sure. sticks out for me is that when there's 263, they always talk about we will help the Vietnamese. And then in 273, is we will help them to win. Right. And it never That's, said I'm to win. You brought that up. That's a very good point. Okay, that, that the objective changed. And Peter Scott was one of the first people, along with Fletcher, to point this out. That, in other words, instead of an, an assistance mission, Johnson changed the objective to a victory mission. Okay, so that, that's a very good point by you. Thanks. All right. Well, uh, we'll talk to you again. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Sure, Len. Those are the latest articles up at Kennedy's and King. Right. We'll, we'll talk about Epstein next time. Okay. Okay, good night. All right. Thank you very much. Good night.